Hello and welcome to another episode of the O3C podcast coming to you from O3C Games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by Chris Dow. Podcasting live from Planet Robobot. Ah, Robobot. We are chatting all about video games. Announcement! Announcement! Happy New Year! Uh, again, I think we probably wished you a Happy New Year in both of the last couple of episodes, but we were actually recording those in 2022. So for us, in earnest at least, it's Happy New Year. And what better way to start 2023 than with some good old-fashioned tithing? <laughs> After being given so much for Christmas, why not give a little back? And if you're doing that, why not give it to us? We put a lot of time, energy, effort, and finance into this podcast, and we couldn't be happier to do it just for that. But if you would like to contribute to the running of the show, give us the capability to do even more, then you can support us over at patreon.com slash O3C Games, and you will be rewarded for doing so from as little as £4 a month, which is about a pound an episode. You will not only be welcomed into the inner circle by way of the Patreon-exclusive O3C Discord server to chat with us, the other Patreons, and variety of other supporters, collaborators, and guests. You will also get a candlestick maker's dozen of exclusive full bonus episodes, <laughs> a butcher's farthing of bonus video content, and a baker's fuck-ton of deleted scenes and outtakes. And you will also get these episodes uncut and ad-free, and in a video form, so you can see our cheeky little faces natter on throughout 2023. So we are back after taking a good old Christmas break. Yes. We hope that you and yours found rest and joy over the holidays and are managing to get through this god-awful trench of a month that is like having a hangover for four weeks. I fucking hate January. Dreadful woman. It's, it's hard work. It is hard work. But we're not here to talk about our feelings on the concepts of time. We are here to talk about video games and video games we are going to talk about the main feature of this episode is to report back on our Christmas homework, because there is no rest for the wicked. Chris set me the task of playing James Pond 2, codename RoboCod, yes. in a, a couple of different formats. And I tasked Chris with finding the best way to play the 20 plus year old action RPG Silver in the year of our Lord yes. now. <laughs> but before we get to that... We have a lot of gaming to report back on because we've had a break of about a month since we last talked about what we were playing and playing what we have. What are you buying? What are you playing? Chris is going to kick us off by telling us about some of the games that were occupying his thumbs over his Santa stuffed belly. <laughs> it's a vivid image. <laughs> <laughs> It feels like it's been months since we last sat down to speak about our gaming activity. And as is the way with my pachinko approach to play, <laughs> I've put a little bit of time into quite a lot over that time. Standard. Firstly, people may or may not know that for the last five years now, I've aimed to beat 52 games each year. And they don't necessarily have to be big, big games. And what constitutes a finish is obviously up to me, meaning that sometimes I go by getting all the achievements or trophies. Sometimes I go by reaching the credit. Sometimes I try and receive all unlockables or whatever. But anyway, when we finished recording our trilogy of festive specials that was a bit before the end of the year, I was sat at 48 games beaten with about a week left to go. Jesus Christ. Until the clock was going to tick into 2023. 
a big thing that sort of waylaid me this year was having access to the Steam Deck because I was picking up more and more and more and I wasn't actually giving them time to finish, finish, finish. So I played lots of little bits of lots of things. I definitely expanded my horizons, but I didn't necessarily get through as much as I had done traditionally. I did beat the goal narrowly, but if people want a bit of detail about the games that I played in order to do so, they can't listen to me now because (laughs) it's all up on O3C.games and you can read a pair of recent articles there where I've put together essentially micro reviews of all 54 games I managed to get through in the calendar year 2022. Nice. So that's a little little starter for you. When you're bored of listening to the podcast, get on your phone, get on the computer, have a little read, let me know what you think. Now with that challenge wrapped, I had mentioned wanting to play either Sonic Frontiers or to try and play through all of Tokyo Extreme Racer on the Dreamcast. That was kind of the ideas I set myself. I didn't beat either of those games over the break. I didn't even unwrap Sonic Frontiers, but I did play another five or so hours of Tokyo Extreme. I'll give you that. Whilst Sonic is still on the shelf. Every bit of media relating to Sonic Frontiers still blows so hot or cold that I genuinely don't know what I'll get when I finally put it on. (laughs) like going by critique it's in contention for both the best and worst of last year depending on who you listen to and it simultaneously seems to be the game that sonic fans have wanted for years as well as an abomination to the fan base it's a modern forward-thinking platformer and a relic of the 2000s (laughs) like it's it's everything all at once and i do still want to play it and i do still intend to play it but i've been busy with some other bits that i will mention now On the Steam Deck, I've naturally played a range of odds and sods, as is now standard. I still love it more than any other piece of hardware I think I've ever owned. Mm. It truly is just the thing I never knew I wanted as much as I did. It has really, really plugged every hole in the way I play games. I started a new game on Thumper one evening, and that's been a a Laura Laura fun. Oh, yeah. Like, I know this is a game that is extremely optimized because it runs perfectly on the PS4 or on mobile or via VR or on the Switch. But even so, I was playing on the deck through the dock to the TV and I could have the choice of either 60 frames a second at full 4K unwavering or a regular 1080p at 120 frames a second with the highest possible smoothing and anti-aliasing. Does your TV support that? Good. It doesn't, but it does in terms of the input polling. So it feels smoother, right? even though my TV is only a 60 frames display, if that makes sense. I've always said that VR was the only way to really play this game. And although I'd still lean in that direction if given the choice, having that higher frame rate and it being more responsive has made the flat version of the game much more playable than I remember. Mm. And I'm now three S-ranked stages down and counting again on this particular play. The vibe of this game is still unreal. It's just so claustrophobic and hellish. And more than anything else, it's hard as nails. Yeah. I just, it's so difficult. I mentioned before that I think you have to have a musical ear to have any hope of surviving in Thumper. And this playthrough is really confirming this because obstacles just don't follow conventional rhythm game patterns. And this is technically still just a game of call and response, like Parappa when you break (laughs) it down, because every visual obstacle that you're contending with is telegraphed a full bar prior with a sound. So you could play it blind if you really wanted to challenge yourself. That'll be next for you. (laughs) (laughs) But where Parappa is a game that's built around pretty simple on or offbeat patterns, Thumper operates so often in those gaps in between those. And you need a really decent understanding of and the ability to feel complicated subdivisions of time, even in standard time signatures, to have any chance at all. I am obviously not into the late game yet, But even as a musician of 20 plus years and as someone who has beaten this game with all S ranks, 
stage nine in particular, the final one, gives me the fear. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's hard work. Something a lot softer. I have also played a decent whack of Fairy Solitaire with Georgia. Oh, I love that game. Whilst relaxing on the couch. Because mouse control maps pretty well to a pad. If you're playing it in handheld, you can obviously use the touchscreen itself or or the touchpads as little sensors. And although having a controller in your hand isn't quite as nice as using those more direct methods, the core addictiveness of this experience is still there. And Georgia hadn't played it before. I kind of taught the rules very quickly. And then she was immediately immersed. You know, we we sat down, we got a, a 20 chain of cards going the other day and past five, every single card one of us was going, oh, 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 <laughs> at increasing volumes. Like, it's so simple. Yeah. There's nothing to this game at all. There is absolutely nothing to it. But it's really, really good. As one of those kind of very quick pick up and play things, it's it's fantastic. Well, the last time we chatted, I, I said that I'd made a start on the fairly new roguelite bullet hell game, Vampire Survivors, that yes. everybody was seeming, seeming to be playing at that time. And uh, I suspected that it was going to keep me entertained for the entire christmas period it did <laughs> I, ma- I managed to pour 80 hours into it oh naturally You've got all the steam achievements for the base game and the dlc but but weirdly there's <laughs> there's like there's not much to talk about with it because it is such a simple game you fight off waves of enemies leveling up getting passive and active items to make you stronger and then you just check off completing different levels with different characters and you keep unlocking more and more stuff until you're done I also don't think it's a hard game uh, at all. Like once you've got a bit of experience and get an idea for what builds are going to work best and how to evolve the weapons with the right active passive pairings, then it's, it's literally just a case of doing it, which whilst it may not sound exciting, it is incredibly satisfying. Yeah. Like when you get that like really, really overpowered setup in something like Binding of Isaac and just enjoy wiping out hordes and hordes of enemies. It helps that, you know, in Vampire Survivors, uh, you've always got a larger objective to strive for, as the game does point you in a lot of the right directions of how to unlock all the various things, even some of the, like the, the secret, secret things. You're given nicely cryptic messages to sort of give you something to try, at least. So you're always playing with a slightly different intention. And it was just exactly the type of low effort, unchallenging gaming experience that I needed to help wind down after, you know, a a pretty pretty hectic year and i have no doubt that when the next bit of dlc is released i'll i'll buy that and i'll jump back in i've even started a new save file on it on my phone because <laughs> they uh, they haven't added cross save support yet which i think is coming but it is absolute kudos to the developers who've been quite public in saying that they struggled to find a mobile developer for the game uh, because they couldn't find somebody to partner with who wasn't insistent on like monetizing it within an inch of its life. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and so they took the decision to say no, we're going to develop it in house. It means that it's going to take longer because we're just doing it ourselves and we don't really do mobile ports and stuff like this, and we want to get it right. But absolute respect to them for doing that, and it makes for a much much better experience. So for now, before I can put my save onto my iPhone, it's just nice to just have it there and just keep getting those little serotonin boosts like i mean i'm not going to put like 80 hours into it i'm not going to complete this as a save well... i'm not i'm not <laughs> <laughs> but it is nice to have it on my phone if i need that hit it's like how you feel about tetris yeah. yeah yeah would you believe me if i said that i've actually played the first little chunk of vampire survivors as well would anyone believe me uh i don't know you're not really one for a bandwagon hop no well this is it i mean i'd put off starting this game 
despite having it in my Steam library from a previous recommendation, I think obviously I checked when you mentioned it at Christmas. I already had it. And then I thought back to when have I bought this? Someone at work recommended it. Like it, it's going right back. So it's it's obviously, you know, it's spread. Yeah. People are talking about this game outside of just like the sort of niche core that you might expect. But because it had this critical mass behind it, I find it really hard to then pick stuff up right in the center of like the lens of zeitgeist mm. being the thing that's driving me playing it. It was the same reason as a different sort of medium when Squid Game came out yeah. on Netflix. I thought I'll probably enjoy this, but that is all anyone is talking yeah. about. And I, I don't want to watch it through that prism of being the thing that everyone is talking about. I want to just give it a bit of time, let the dust yeah. settle. Then I can actually appraise it as something that is good or bad, but that's on me to yeah. decide. That's why I haven't watched it yet either. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Oh, uh, uh, well, don't, don't say that, because now I'm not going to watch it for another <laughs> six months. <laughs> but when I did finally sit down and play Vampire Survivors, I could tell straight away that this is, as you mentioned, an incredibly simple game, but an incredibly well-tuned game. Like, it's got such a just a simple concept it's not a million miles away from half minute hero on the psp years back and that was a game that was trying to cram the main elements of an rpg into as the title suggests 30 second chunks Mm. but this is even more distilled somehow like runs are longer than that but the gameplay loop of just being get the experience get better get more experience get better Mm. it's very very pure and i think the thing that always lets me down in this type of game as roguelikes and roguelites is that I don't have a head for stats or synergies or number strategy. Mm. And if I think about the way I played Binding of Isaac, or the hundreds of times I've played it, every run I've had over the years has felt like I'm just going in blind, yeah. even after I've sat and played it for 20 hours across a few weeks. Like it's much the same with any of these sort of games that I've dabbled with since. I just sit there in the moment making stupid choices and decisions going, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. And then I start again and do the same thing again. I found one of the best things about Vampire Survivors is the fact that they've really gone quite minimalist with synergies. Like, synergies aren't a thing. The way that you evolve a weapon is basically the equivalent of getting, like, a good synergy of of two items in Binding of Isaac or something like that. And then you can view those pairings on your pause screen as well. I've unlocked that now. I have got to the point where I have access to that. So it's kind of guided my runs a bit more. So once once you figure out kind of what actually pairs with what, that's it then and it's like oh cool well i know that if i'm playing with a character that starts with a lightning ring then i need to probably prioritize finding a duplicator which i know is the passive that's going to pair with that to allow me to evolve the lightning ring and then you you can base your runs then around around that so you can be like okay well what six weapons do i want to try this time and then you know what combos you know you need to get to 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 evolve all of them and get really overpowered again it's just you just don't need to use your brain um (laughs) it's great i love it a game that I've actually put more time into than the two or three hours I've played Vampire Survivors is a pretty blatant, not necessarily copy, but certainly inspired by a game called Brotato. I saw this and thought, I really want to play this, and then thought, I don't have 80 hours and a Christmas break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the big difference here is that it's a direct controlled twin stick shooter, mm. uh, as opposed to just being about movement. And I think that's what got me interested initially. Because even if now, having played both, I think Vampire Survivors is a much better, more tightly designed game. Having more direct control just felt a bit better to begin with. The main change also outside of the way it controls is the way that upgrades are managed. So rather than just surviving until you hit uh, an experience cap and then getting to level up, in Brotato, you're aiming to hold on for a wave of enemies at a time. And then you get access to like a shot every 60 seconds or however long a round is. And that's where you spend your earnings and try to spec your potato in whatever build style you want. Kind of like um, Snake RX. Oh, yeah. 
quite similarly to that. But here, there's far more opportunities to become the sort of ambient ball of death you can in Vampire Survivors, because mm. you're constantly swapping in weapons and other kind of effects and things that are just endlessly layering on top of your character. I'm not any good at it, of course. And just like Vampire Survivors, I haven't really got my head around what items I should be going for, what I'm looking for that's going to complement the things I've already got. And I'm sure I am frequently buying items that probably immediately nullify those I've already leveled up. (laughs) Because I I just don't think, it's like, well, that's got a green number, so that must be better. And I'm not checking that it's also got a red number that means something else is going to get worse. (laughs) But I really enjoy the loop of it. And having twin stick input makes it feel more like I'm playing Geometry Wars, the roguelike, rather than the kind of avoid them up gameplay that you have at the first three hours of Vampire Survivors whilst you're you're building up and getting somewhere. But yeah, both good games. I'd, I'd recommend them both, even as a casual person like me. Two games that featured in my highlights of 2022 have both been in the news recently no. because Chocobo GP and Babylon's Fall, both live service connected Square Enix ventures, are both having their wings clipped less than a year after their launch. I didn't, I didn't even see that happen. I, I, you must be devastated. So whilst this is less of an issue for Chocobo, because all they're doing is they're saying, we're not adding any more fresh content. You know, you can still play online. We've still got the, the GP mode and everything else. We're just not adding more tracks and stuff like that. Babylon's Fall is more of a problem mm-hmm. because it's totally online. And that means at the end of February, the game is done. Like the whole thing is finished. Because, you know, as an online hack and slash RPG looty thing, when the server isn't there, the game isn't there. So it is gone in entirety and in perpetuity. In just a few weeks. That's sad. So it's meant over the last fortnight, I'd say, I've jumped back in pretty hard to try and wipe out the last few trophies I had before they are completely unobtainable. Because I put enough time into it that I thought I should at least try and beat what was offered. And I got through the story mode just this last weekend. So I beat all those. And now I'm on to kind of the post-game grind as I'm attempting to up my power level to a certain value so I can do other more challenging quests and knock out the last few trophies of just pure attrition at this stage, like a certain amount of armor pieces and a certain amount of currency and things like that. I'm enjoying the game less than I was, I will say that, for playing it the way I am having to at the moment. Because whereas before the lack of players and difficulty matchmaking with the players that were there was kind of a minor inconvenience and I could just do a level solo and it was okay, I'd just you know grind through it, take a little bit longer it's a lot bigger an issue when there's a big calendar ticking down in the background. (laughs) Because if I can do a level in 15 minutes, great. If I have to then do it solo and it takes me half an hour, that's a lot more dead time. Yeah. As the game was previously predicated on having this like battle pass and in-game seasons and everything else as well, there's always been a big countdown at the top of the hub world, letting you know how long until the content's going to refresh and a new season started. But now that clock is a countdown to the game's death now. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, the days remaining up there are not just reflecting the season's duration, but the entire lifespan of the game. <laughs> so They need to replace it with the moon from Majora's Mask. They do, they do. <laughs> that, that would that would get me going. Yeah. Because of the difficulty of the late game stuff I'm trying to beat, like I said, it's been harder to solo three missions like I was doing before. And whereas sometimes I could just sit half paying attention until a game came up and then I could join and whatever else. Now, if I sit down to play for an hour, I want to actually come away with an hour's progress. And because that's still quite difficult, because there's a lot of people doing the same thing as me, but it's got such a shit matchmaking system that it's like, if you don't have the same level unlocked, you can't play together. If you're like very disparate power levels, there's a problem. If you choose someone's doing a quest, but someone's doing a siege, which is just two different names for the same level, you can't get in a game together. It's annoying. 
<laughs> Will I finish it in time? Probably at this stage, because I don't think I've got that much more to do. I'm very much in final grind territory, but we will see on that one. <laughs> I don't know. A much less stressful game I've been playing at bedtime is one that I've mentioned before, and that is Pokemon Picross on the Game Boy Color oh. again. Yeah, I haven't played that one, have I? It's good. It's really good. Like yeah. the, the translation of the leaked ROM got an update semi-recently, and this is now basically an entirely complete Jupiter-helmed Picross game, preserved and playable when otherwise it would have been lost. Amazing. I had been playing this on my 3DS of an evening back when I was playing it before, but for some reason I started a fresh save on the Steam Deck about a month back. And again, I'm just having a nice time picking through a few boards before Sleepy Beepies, mm -hmm. like the last little bit of the evening, because I don't have to focus too much. I'm quite good at Picross these days. It's just spotting patterns and then chucking little little squares in. The reason I think I'm drawn to this entry particularly, rather than one of, say, the Picross S games on the Switch, is that to accommodate the smaller screen and pixel resolution of the Game Boy Color, puzzles never get that taxing. And the largest panels, they are never going to stretch to being greater than 20 by 20. And even then, they're split up into four bite-sized 10 by 10s to make the 20 by 20. And it just means it's really brisk. You know, a puzzle's never more than a few minutes long. And a challenge comes not from making a mistake 20 minutes ago into a huge board and then having to redo the whole thing, but more from just aiming to hit the tight par times on each stage, mm. because then you're rewarded with a master ball clear rather than a regular old pokeball clear. And I'm probably halfway through the game now, six or seven hours in. I'm just having a nice time. So nice. It's a good thing to just chip away i've played some other bits and bobs of course you have it's been months. It has, i know it has i <laughs> i uh i I've, I've been chipping away at uh mario and rabbits sparks of hope which is Ooh. is absolutely superb yeah. it basically evolved the game so much in every single way like every single thing that was great about the first game has been made even better there's more overworld stuff the battles are more dynamic there's just so much more stuff going on it's it's, it's just it's absolutely brilliant. It's such a quality game. It's so well made. Also on the Switch, so even before our end of year special went out, I was undermined in my games of 2023. I was looking forward to section because Sports Story, the long-awaited sequel to Golf Story, shadow dropped onto the eShop just before Christmas. And yeah. as I said, I would yeah. do. I buy it day one and play nothing else. Unfortunately, I don't know why they released it because it's really <laughs> unfinished. <laughs> it's riddled with bugs and yeah. pacing issues. It's slow. It's plodding. It's imprecise. Surely any benefit they would have had by releasing it in time for Christmas would have been significantly negated by this horrendous bad press it's getting. Yeah, like They're continuing to patch the game, obviously, because well, I assume they were planning on finishing it anyway. <laughs> uh, so they may as well do it now. I'll sure get to that. <laughs> so I'm just going to pretend that it hasn't been released yet. And when like, I don't know, 1.3 or whatever, it's had a few updates and people are saying, yeah, okay, this is this is good to go now. Then I'll be like, oh my God, a sports story's finally out and give it another go. But yeah. <laughs> Take two, yeah. It's a game that, that looked and was shaping up to be an absolute banger, but has so far fallen woefully short. Which leads me on nicely to another game I played, which was a game that looked and was shaping up to be an absolute stinker, a colossal joke of a game, <laughs> a total artistic and economic failure, but has ended up being an extraordinarily enjoyable game, which literally, literally wowed me from start to finish as I 100%ed it over the course of about 20 hours. And that, my friend, is Sonic Frontiers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
I am as surprised as anyone else. Jeez. Basically, I played the demo on the Switch when that dropped. And whilst it was a technical shithouse of a game, I could see the seeds in there of a game that I could potentially really enjoy. Yeah. So I just decided to plump for the PS5 version, even though I couldn't find it like on sale anywhere or like, anywhere much below RRP. But honestly, I do not regret spending a single penny of that price now. The open world that the that the game is set in, you basically set across five islands. So it's sort of five open zones. Yeah. And they are expansive enough to enjoy being fast in 3D space rather than feeling just horrendously imprecise, which I felt 3D Sonic has been in the past. Yeah. The thing yeah. that surprised me most about the game is how collectathony it is. It may as well be like a N64 style, you know, 3D platformer rare type collectathon game. And having that like in a Sonic context where they've put real thought into how you move around these open zones, the different uh, puzzle elements that are in there. It reminded me of two things. Firstly, it reminded me of Sonic Jam. Oh, the, the open world bit at the beginning. Yeah. The museum section. Yeah. So um, Sonic Jam was a collection of Sonic 1, Sonic 2, Sonic 3 and Sonic and & Knuckles on the Sega Saturn. And in addition to having those four games emulated and a few other like museum and galleries and videos and stuff like that they had this this little 3d hub you could just run around in as sonic there were little objectives you could do so you like you've got like a an award for like collecting 100 rings or finding like five red coins the standard sort of collectathony type thing and i i love that in sonic jam i played that loads but the other thing that Sonic Frontiers really reminded me of is the new Bowser's Fury section that came out with Super Mario Jeez. 3D World. Yeah. Which was open world exploration with platforming and puzzle elements scattered around. I really, I hope it's what the future of Mario is going to be because I think it's, it's, it's such a dynamic way of presenting, you know, these things as like interconnected ideas. But Sonic Frontiers has, has nailed it, really. There's a few things that you will come across on these different islands. There's little packs of enemies that are there and they're all quite different and, and uh, have different ways to dispatch. There are bigger enemies called Titans, which are sort of like mini bosses and they're a lot bigger. They require a lot more strategy to beat, uh, but they're, they're fantastic. It, it doesn't feel like, you know, you're playing an action game. It still feels like you're exploring. And then you get map markers that will have a puzzle that you need to solve. And that will unlock a part of the map so you can see a bit further. And these little elements, the amount of variety in these is ridiculous. Some of them will be like, hit this switch. Some of them will be like, here's a ball, hit it through this hoop. Some of it will be run through these rings or a little time trial. Some of it will be like, jump this rope, do a dance. Basically, like every single idea you could possibly throw into the mix were there. And it meant that it was always interesting and, and always entertaining to play because you never knew what was going to happen. And it really benefited you to unlock parts of the map so then you can fast travel around it and all of that stuff. But you never use fast travel because, like Spider-Man on PlayStation, it's more fun just to travel around, just to take the long way around. It's, it's much more fun. And Scenic route. Yeah, take the scenic route. And, and a big thing that goes along to, to develop this is the implementation of the, the different platforming elements that are in Sonic Frontiers, mostly the ancient rails, as they're called, which is basically just like the rails that Sonic likes to grind on. <laughs> he loves it. He, he bloody loves, loves it. that. Bloody loves it. <laughs> they're everywhere. When you uh, like beat certain challenges and stuff, more will appear that will connect areas that you've been to. And then these might be combined with a little short platforming section that will allow you to get you know, some rings and some other collectibles and stuff like this. 
And basically, there's just always stuff. There's always something. Wherever you end up, there's always something. You think, oh, that, that looks fun. Uh, it's a spiral or something. That'll be fun. Or, oh, I'll just go and do that. Oh, what's that? What's this? What's that? What's this? It's a joy to spend time in. <laughs> and a lot of that is down to the brilliance of the soundtrack. It's one of the best gaming soundtracks I've ever heard. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> the title of the, of the soundtrack album is Stillness and Motion. It combines these two main elements that come to form the soundtrack to this game. The stillness, which is the sort of ambient atmospheric music that goes with each island. Each of them has about six or seven movements to it, uh, yeah. with the main sort of themes and motifs of the island theme being developed and sort of rising in various different emotions as, and all of that. Oh, it's just <laughs> stunning. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Like it just means that like you can just enjoy just standing still in this world, having a little look around, looking at the the beautiful environment. I mean, if you're not moving as well, you won't notice some of the unnecessary popping that's there. Yeah. And to be honest, like the popping didn't really bother me too much. Like it is a bit of a shame because when you've got all of these cool platforms and rails sort of woven into the environment, it does feel quite organic, like a sort of weird ancient place. But then when you see those elements appearing, it does sort of take you out of it you know, a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, like in old cartoons when it'd be like, well, I know that rock's going to fall on him. It's clearly <laughs> not, it's not a watercolor. It's clearly yeah, somebody drawing yeah. it. But it, it like, it never, like the pop-in never affected the gameplay for me at all. Like I could always see where I was heading to, not just, you know, flinging myself into the yonder, hoping the draw distance would, would catch up and, and give me yeah, somewhere to yeah. land. But I, I cannot overstate just how good the soundtrack is to this game. There's two hours of beautiful ambient atmospheric music. But then you do have the flip side of that soundtrack album, Stillness and Motion. You have the motion section, which is what goes with one of the other elements that are scattered around the islands, which are these portals to cyberspace. And basically it's a sonic level to play. Yeah, You know, you hit one of these things, you unlock it, and then you go and do a level. And... And for a start, the, the levels themselves, they actually feel like they're straight out of Sonic Generations, which is a really good thing because like some of the levels are presented in 2D, like sort of 2D scrolling. And then you get like the more downhill, you know, 3D stages. Yeah. They're all quite short. They're always quite short. All of them are under two minutes, which makes them feel manageable. The only downside to these levels is that they are, well, they're actually just reusing the level themes straight out of Sonic Generations. So you've got <laughs> Green Hill levels, chemical yeah. plant levels, marble yeah. garden levels, and then some miscellaneous city theme. And whilst, yeah, it's nice to see these environments, it would have been great to see more original designs to help this game stand apart, you know, a little yeah. bit more, or even like revisiting some other things from previous games, like having yeah, a, there's been a, lot. a Sandopolis theme or a Rusty Ruins theme or an Angel Island theme, or, you know, but maybe next time, maybe next time. But the music that goes along with these sections is like straight out of Sonic R. It's, well, not quite. <laughs> Nothing's like the music out of Sonic no. R. <laughs> and that's probably a good thing, to be honest. But there's every every type of music under the sun on yeah. this soundtrack, and it makes every single part of playing this game a real joy. Because not only does it look and feel really smooth and slick to play, it sounds absolutely brilliant. One of the things that looked the stupidest on all of the videos I saw of it beforehand <laughs> was the, uh, the, the combat system in the overworld. I touched yeah. on it a little bit, yeah. saying there were enemies and titans to battle. The way they described it was you basically had your homing attack and it just looked like you were just hitting that. It just looked really bland. The combat does mostly still revolve around one button, but then there's loads of combos to learn. There's loads of special moves to unlock, to spice things up. 
and the enemies get more advanced across the islands, uh, so you need to approach them more strategically. But it's really good fun. It just feels really good. Like, it feels very responsive. And the Titans and the main boss fights, the main boss fights, they're, they're really outstanding. They've got great design. They're always huge. Uh, they're always keeping you on your toes. But it also, like, made it make sure to feel fun and cool to pull off, like, various little things with a few, like, quick time moments weaved in. Not too many. These main island boss fights, they reminded me of Bayonetta or like another Platinum game with that sense of scale and chaos going on, making you feel like an absolute combat wizard, even though you were really only pressing left and right and hit. I honestly don't have a bad word to say about this game. Like I said, it's a shame about some of the popping, but it doesn't really ruin the gameplay at all. It's it's enough to lose it a point. It's a 9 out of 10 game. Jesus. That's my review, 9 out of 10. Sonic Frontiers. Absolutely incredible. I really want you to play it. It's genuinely is the 3D Sonic game that I've wanted. I've never enjoyed more than 20 minutes of a 3D Sonic game before. Your review has certainly bumped it up the pecking order. Mm. You know, I'm trying to plan out the next little chunk of gaming time for myself this year. And I know that obviously I've got to keep playing Babylon's Fall for a bit to get that licked and finished. But then after that, the PS5 is just going to be sitting there. Disk drive empty, ready to go. Yeah. So maybe I will finally in the, the next week or so, take the seal off and crack into Sonic Frontiers. <laughs> Nine out of ten. Yeah. Jonathan Dunn. You heard it here. Fortnite report! So, we set each other Christmas homework for our last Fortnite report. Not a fortnight. It was a we month. Did. It was a month. Double fortnight. And in fact, this is actually going to be the last fortnight report we do for a little while because our lives and times are increasingly busy. Yeah. That it's 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 difficult to fit in required playing in addition to playing to really enjoy. We're still going to be doing the play date episodes, but we're going to shelve fortnight reports for a little bit until uh, until we have a little bit more time to uh, to dedicate to it. But we have not scrimped on our homework over this festive period because I have played James Pond 2, codename Robocard. It's got two colons. Correct. It does. It's an ugly title. It's not the best. They just really want as many puns. They're going for too many puns. Yeah, they, they... What are you parodying? Choose one. Exactly. Exactly. It really confused me as a child. I remember seeing somebody playing it on like Games Master yeah. and thinking that James Bond and Robocop were the same thing. They could be. They're not. You've seen them in the same room? Ooh. That's a thinker. But I have played it on both its original format and the Game Boy Advance newer version of it. And I'm going to be telling you about that. But Chris, first of all, is going to tell me how he got on with one of my favourite games that I played on a PC when I was a kid. It's called Silver. It was actually in my honourable mentions for my original top 100 list. So I hold it in very high regard. It had a Dreamcast port. It had a very revolutionary mouse-based movement-y combat thing that I knew wouldn't map very well to a controller if we were looking to play it on the Steam Deck. But I know that, you know, the Dreamcast version was there and had already been ported. And I was very intrigued to see, one, how you would enjoy the game, and two, how best you think the game could be enjoyed. Silver. Getting the easy stuff out of the way first. Obviously, when you set the challenge, you said, what's the best way to play it? Then in 2022, now in 2023, if you were sat at a desktop, the Steam port is more than serviceable, as I think it's had basically a native rebuild at some point in the not 
too far flung past. So everything's mapped perfectly to keyboard and mouse. All the graphics scale up nicely. The UI works for modern systems. Like it's easy to just boot it up. It's no problem. If you're playing on Steam Deck like I have been, you can also play the native Steam version if you want. There's some pretty good community controller layouts that you can apply that move the contextual sword play stuff to like a combination of triggers and trackpad swipes. And it does work. Like I played the first sort of 15 minutes and I was like, yeah, this this is serviceable. I could do this. But as you've mentioned and alluded to, to streamline everything, I suggest just grabbing the Dreamcast port because content-wise, it's pretty much identical. With upscaling, it looks just as sharp and the controls have already been consoleized. You know, there's no additional wrapper you're working through to get it working. It's just as they were at the time. The game then, it's an action RPG. As you mentioned way back on the honourable mentions list, it has very sincere, very straight, very down the line voice acting. Yeah, it has. <laughs> and, it cer- <laughs> and it certainly gives the game a flavour of its own. Yeah. I'll say that. Like the game world, at least the way it's presented, looks like the overworld sections of Final Fantasy VII. So it's got pre-rendered backgrounds, but with these chunky polygonal characters yeah. romping around on top. But the voice acting gives it all a sort of thespian vibe that Square's game just does not manage because that was a game of text boxes rather than fully voiced dialogue. In the game, the antagonist of the world, a big meanie, titularly named Silver, decides one day that it's wife in time and rather than bother with traditional courtship, decides to just gather up every single woman alive in the game's region of Jara and have them shipped to his quarters so that he can choose his partner, like a modern-day meat market. I mean... <laughs> Call me outrageous, but <laughs> but you can't argue with his efficiency. Exactly, exactly. I mean, he stays put as well. They come to him. You can't spell concubine without you and I. <laughs> <laughs> the main player character, a wet flannel of a man named David, <laughs> takes, uh, takes umbrage with his wife Jennifer being whisked from their bucolic existence, and along with his grandfather, that you have quoted several times already, <laughs> takes off to give rescue. Now, one thing I did notice within my very first half an hour of play is that Silver is a brisk game. Like, the site How Long to Beat suggests it's about 10 hours all in, but the pace at which the game motors along in its first few hours makes me question how it's possible for the game to last that long. Considering within my first play session, I'd already left my village, fought through a band of Silver's enforcers, wept as I watched the boat carry Jennifer away in real time, smashed through a bandit camp, befriended the camp's denizens, entered a wizard's tower of some sort called the Archives of Gno, and then battled with a whole host of little skeleton boys and imps. That's a lot going on in about 30 minutes. (laughs) It's interesting to be thrown along at that speed, though, because games just aren't made like that anymore. Yeah, There's no lengthy onboarding here outside of a throwaway combat tutorial that literally appears in minute three of the game. And whilst I do appreciate this kind of blast core accelerando time to get moving from the moment I booted it up, I do think it would have been nice to just chill out a bit <laughs> early doors yeah. and just get a feel for like where I was for what Jarrah was as a place. And, you know, just get a read on what David's situation with his wife actually is. I know that Jennifer is introduced as your wife, but they literally share two lines of dialogue before she swept away. <laughs> like we're talking original Double Dragon style motivation for the protagonist. Oh, God, it's I just bad man takes Jesus. wife and then you're away. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Combat, as you mentioned, is a big deal in this game. You mentioned the almost motion controlled mouse sword swinging mm. analog thing that the PC version of the game employs. 
And whilst it's not quite the same when you play it on a pad, it is still an action-heavy, hands-on hack-and-slash game. So it's an action RPG. It's not turn-based or anything like that. Holding the right trigger will ready your sword. Depending on which direction you push the analog stick, you'll then slash either left or right across your body, or spear forwards, or swing backwards. And it's a bit clunky at first. It takes a bit of time to get used to, as you can't move when fighting, because the Dreamcast only had one analog stick. But after a few encounters, it starts to feel relatively intuitive. And it's quite nice to feel like, oh, I plan to do that, that little, you know, repost back and forth and everything else. It's, it's quite nice. Despite looking like Final Fantasy VII, like I said, it's all real-time combat. And it just makes the breakneck speed of the thing feel all the more relentless. Yeah. Because every scene you walk into, there is a horde of enemies to dispatch pretty much immediately yeah. as you cross the scene transition. So in the first few hours, there is just no let-up. You know, an hour in, maybe there's a big story beat, which I won't spoil. The game's, you know, 20 plus years old, but I'll let you find it yourself. And I guess that is intended to give you a bit more motivation to pursue the game's big bads. (laughs) But I found it quite hard to take much emotional thrust from this scene due to the voice acting and the soundtrack feeling a bit local theatre troupe does Lord of the Rings, if you will. (laughs) Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Hey, nobody else had done Lord of the Rings in 1999. No, no. And this was likely a pretty big budget vocal session for the time. Mm. Because if you think back to kind of the relative contemporaries, they would either forgo voicing characters at all, or in a lot of cases, like early sort of PlayStation into sort of Dreamcast sort of era, they just rope in some of the dev team to lend a few voices to fill the space. And whatever you say about this game, it's not that. Mm. (laughs) You know, they, they have people who are doing a directed voice throughout for better or worse it's interesting it's one of those areas of game development i guess that in a weird way has aged the project more than the visual aesthetic because an indie team could make a game that looks like silver in 2023 by aesthetic choice but they probably wouldn't make a game that sounds like silver <laughs> you know? yeah. both because of the budget constraints in, in kind of hiring a team of, of actors to do it and good sense <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like you say, because the quality of video games voice acting has come such a huge way since those early days. You know, if if you play a a modern AAA game, the voice cast is Hollywood level. And that's kind of what we now expect. You know, people are telling these big grand stories just through a video game medium. And as we've lamented sometimes, it ends up being that games are a bit more story than they are game. It does mean if you just want to have a nice experience through sort of a prestige story, as if you're watching something from HBO, you're probably going to get it in in a lot of certainly first-party Sony stuff. As I carried on trucking through the game story, I also started to realise how surprisingly linear Silver is Mm. for an RPG. Like, there are kind of side quests now and again, but so far, it's essentially been more of a case of just go, go, go. As David and his compatriots, whoever is accompanying you at the time, are just chasing Silver's army across the land from A to B to C fighting the odd boss, collecting maybe a specific MacGuffin to bypass a roadblock to just carry on your linear path. There hasn't, at least so far, been any what I'd call chill-out time. Mm. <laughs> you know, I like I like just exploring a place a bit. And for the most part, almost all of your NPC encounters are just used as an opportunity to push the plot along and keep you moving along the railroad. But I have enjoyed my time with Silver so oh, far. Good. Being entirely honest, I think I would have aimed to play more of it if I hadn't been giving all my free gaming time at the moment to Babylon's Fall before it shuts down, it takes a lot of time and it makes me worry that sort of fear of missing out thing where there's a set deadline in the sky. I think I probably will return to Silver and pick up David's quest when I have the time. 
so I can avenge my fallen comrade, so I can hopefully rescue my wife. And maybe she will offer a third line of dialogue. You never know. <laughs> if, I, if I'm to find her in person. But it's a good time. And it's a game I had heard of before you mentioned it. But I'd heard of it only because at some stage I was collecting Dreamcast games just as part of the Infinite Project. And I'd picked Silver up. I think I played literally five minutes just to see what is this game that I've, I've got now before eventually selling it on when I kind of slimmed down that whole collection. So it wasn't an entirely new thing. I knew at least that it was an action RPG, but I'd never put more than that opening kind of tutorial time into it. And I think it's, it's actually a pretty good time. As soon as you get used to the constraints of that combat system being something a little bit different, when you get used to it not being a sort of turn-based RPG, yeah. even if it kind of looks like it might be, as soon as you're into the mindset that this is far closer to, say, you know, I'm going through dungeons, essentially Zelda-style, and with a very, very limited map that is essentially just, you are here, now you are here, now you are here, yeah. and you will not be going back <laughs> for the most part. It's a good time. So yeah, it's decent. So I too decided to give the Dreamcast version a whirl because it, it seemed to be the least faffering way of uh, refreshing my memory of it. And I, oh, I just love it. Like, I think you're right about the tone of the game being what is easily called twee or you know overwrought but i think that this game aims to be like an archetype of the genre especially as it was developed and released you know pre peter jackson making high fantasy cool and accessible so all of the characters are archetypes which is why you know david is how he is david's wife is just david's wife and (laughs) her only function is to be fridged to get the plot moving and, you know, that was the setup for most stories before the societal and, you know, gender revolution of the last 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, and it's why Silver, the character, is such a big old meanie, because he's an amalgamation of all the classic villains of the piece. They totally double down on this tone. And rather than it being, you know, a parody or a pastiche, it seeks to be the prime example of this type of fiction. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't know whether or not you'd have been able to tell this story in this way in another medium at that time and even like the locations are archetypes with really evocative generalized names like you've got the town of rain which seems to be stuck in this perpetual drizzly gloom or the frozen lands called winter and there's the underwater cathedral built in the caverns it's called spires and it's funny you know you mentioning the rampant pacing of the game because i remember taking a lot of time to just be still in those environments and take them in and and there's certainly something about those places being realized in this style uh you know in terms of like the pre-rendered backgrounds with very minimal animation means they sort of have that storybook watercolor feel to them there's an aesthetic choice to the old fixed camera angles pre-rendered stuff that it can have problems because you look at something at resident evil if you didn't grow up playing that the sort of tank controls endlessly point you in weird directions I think it's basically impossible to get into now if it's not something you experienced before. But for Silver, because it's more top down for the most part, or certainly like closer to being kind of isometric perspective, generally your controller is essentially one to one. So if you go down, you go down and everything else. So it's easy to pick up. And it lets a developer, I guess, when you are rendering those scenes, choose what to show. And I think that helps create some of that atmosphere you mentioned. Because certain stages, it's you are very small in the background. Yeah. Because, you know, the, yeah. the picture you've got is really showing the scale of it. I like that. Other times you might walk into a corridor where it's much, much closer mm. and you get 
more of a sort of visual on David and whoever he's with, which doesn't look that great because, you know, they are very much like floating individual polygons, Rayman style almost when you get up close. But within the context of everything else, it does give the place kind of a a sense of being a a real world location. And as much as I said, you're not hanging around places so much because it is very much saying there's the door, off you go. There's another door, off you go. When you walk through them, you're still getting sort of a sense of traversing a castle or a forest or wherever you might be going through. It's good. What else have you played? As in, what game did you set me to play? <laughs> James Pond 2. Codename Project Roboflop. That's the one. Yeah. 16-bit platformer. Christmas themed for this sequel. Yeah. Never played the yeah. first one. Still haven't. No, don't need to. So when I played Donald Duck in Quackshot and Mickey Mouse yeah. Cost of Illusion, I said how those games were sort of B-tier, 16-bit platformers, alongside stuff like Aladdin. You know, when you look at the, the A-tiers that are Super Mario World, Donkey Kong yeah. Country, Sonic 3 and Knuckles. In yeah. fact, it's an insult to say that any other game is just one tier below those. Yeah, James Pond is another tier lower than, uh, than the Disney ones, <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think. <laughs> C and or D, depending yeah, on which, uh, yeah. which metric you're using. I mean, the biggest problem I have with games from this era, and certainly in this style, is that the way they're presented, they just basically haven't figured out how to best use the hardware to do... It's not platforming design, it's just the aesthetic design of these games. To paraphrase Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, they're <laughs> more preoccupied with what they can do as opposed to what they yeah. what they should do. And I mean this in particular relation to the way that they design the art for backgrounds in platform games. Yeah. Because the background pixel art in James Pond is nauseating. (laughs) It is so insanely distracting and confusing because you've got, there's no sense of depth. There's barely any like parallax scrolling because of how they're presented or even if they are, it's, it's such repeated motifs and designs that it's like you're being thrown into a tumble dryer. Which is a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> yep. Especially as in some of the levels of James Bond 2, Codename RoboCod, there are actual platforming elements from other stages used as scrolling backgrounds in another level. Yes. And that yes. is fucking horrible. Like, you know, yeah. we've said before about how brilliant the 3DS is for 2D platformers. Yeah. And it's precisely for, for this reason, especially for playing like pixel art type 2D platformers like Shovel Knight. I enjoy 10 times more on the 3DS than playing it on another system because you don't have that differentiation, that clear delineation between what's interactive and what's not. Yeah. And Shovel Knight is a very, very well-designed game. This is basically telling me to guess whether or not a sprite is interactable or not. <laughs> there's also a, a real lack of uh, coherence in the design of, of enemies because there's also vehicles that you can get in and drive. Yeah. But there's also some vehicles that are enemies. Yep. There are power-ups that look like collectibles uh, and there are power-ups that uh, look like hazards. There's no clue or consistency (laughs) as to what these things are. It's not a nice game to play. Yeah, but you can do that little stretchy thing. That is one thing you can do. Like Aside from just being a a straightforward platforming game, the main gimmick that you have is that Mr. Pond can extend his body upwards ad infinitum, I think. Or basically until you come into contact with something else. I don't know. Maybe maybe the fact that there's two colons in the title is a clue to his internal digestive system. (laughs) It just keeps adding colons the the longer he gets. There's two main uses of it. One is to collect things that are too high. The other is to grab onto the underside of platforms. 
and then you have the same problem that you have in the first thing of knowing what's a platform, where you're meant to go. Yeah. It's not a good game. I can see why it was appealing at the time, because it's got really nice cartoony sprites. It's bright and colourful, yeah. especially uh, James Bond 2, codename Robocod, with its Christmas theme. And it was exactly in the vein of, of other sort of, you know, 2D platform games that weren't those A-list first party games. It reminded me a little bit of the New Zealand story that I had on the Master System. Yes, that's, that's a really good shout, actually. Yeah. Because New Zealand Story is another game where there's a lot going on. Mm. There's a lot of enemies. There's things you can ride, other things that look like you should be able to ride that you can't. There's a lot of power-ups and collectibles that do nothing and sometimes hurt you and sometimes don't. Yeah, That's an amazingly astute uh, <laughs> connection, actually. And I, I don't have any idea if there would be any like knowing lineage between yeah. them. Because New Zealand Story, I think, is by Taito. It's a Japanese-developed game. James Bond, I'm, I'm pretty sure, is, is UK-developed yeah. by, by a team over here. And generally, the design sensibilities of the two regions was just totally separate. Yeah, that's really interesting. But it's odd. There is a really clear, like, <laughs> almost accidental overlap thinking about it. Yeah, that's really funny. So good spot. Well done, Jonathan Dunn. Now, for reasons unknown, as we briefly discussed when you sent me this, the game was modernised and re-released on the Game Boy Advance. Could have easily just been ported, but instead all of the levels were redesigned. I wish I knew why. Yeah. <laughs> Help us find out, please. Yeah, yeah, someone answer this question. The GBA version has the classic GBA problem of having a too small a screen space to see much in advance. Hooray! <laughs> the Game Boy Advance had the power to do really nice sprite design. Like you look at the port of Rayman, you can see these sprites moving in the resolution that they're meant to be, but then they're too big. Yeah. But weirdly, and I don't really know why, the game felt a lot better to control yeah. on the Game Boy Advance. And I don't know why, because I couldn't see anything drastic that was being done differently. It might be that, I mean, the stage designs did feel a bit more modern. It still had a few of the similar problems, but it felt a lot more coherent in terms of like knowing how to get from A to B. I'm now interested because it came out on the GBA at the same time. I think it got a port to the PlayStation 1 as mm. well. I think there's a budget port on the PS2 from that era as well. Like it was getting shopped around. I don't know why. Yeah. I, I really do not know why. You can get it on the Switch. Yeah. There was, there was a modern Switch version. Is that the same version? Is yeah. it the original version? Is it HD? Maybe. Am I going to spend money to find out? You might. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, it doesn't have a physical release. Oh, yeah. So I'm less inclined to chuck like eleven ninety nine into it. I mean, I'm not going to play it either. But maybe somebody will run it at like GDQ or something. And then I can we can enjoy it and laugh. And then donate, please. Yes. All in all... I don't think 16-bit platformers are for me, apart from <laughs> the aforementioned ones. Yeah, It's not a surprise, given that I didn't own a 16-bit console. Yeah, So I have no experience of, of those games. I don't have any nostalgia or any sort of rose-tinted view of, of, of those games at all. I didn't have any appreciation for what they were doing at the time. And there's been a lot of games that were featured on your top 100 list that, even though I knew, and I thought, oh, I could boot it up and give it a go on, on emulator. And I'm just like, Oh, it's just, they're frustrating because they're almost doing something that I'm going to really enjoy. And I think maybe that's just because, yeah, I missed out on that generation. Yeah. Maybe. So there we go. That was a lot of games that we've just talked about. A lot of games. Um, that's what we do in a month. Uh, we play a lot of games. Specifically, we did enjoy reporting back on Silver and James Pond 2, codename RoboCod. As we mentioned, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from our Fortnite Challenge format, but next week we will be back talking about the next two Playdate games. 
Hypermeteor and Zipper. Ooh. If you want more out of us, then uh, you can. Go to our website, o3c.games. There's reviews, articles, think pieces, videos, streaming content, loads of stuff. And if you want to get even more, then you can go to patreon.com slash o3cgames, pledge a little bit of money as a regular subscription to us, and you'll get bonus episodes, deleted scenes, outtakes, bonus video content, access to the Discord server, and these episodes ad-free and uncut. Yeah. You can chat to us on social media if you want. We're at o3cgames on everything, so reach out, have a laugh. Or you can take us to task individually. I'm at Jonathan Dunn on Twitter. I am at Chaz underscore Hodges. And we will see you next week for a play date. It's a play date. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. Sequelcast 2 and Friends looks at movies and video games and franchises one movie and game at a time. Hosted by Matt Bradley Shurgi, Thrasher, and Alex Miller, been going since 2009, and we're part of the HyperX Podcast Network. The award-winning Go Nintendo podcast is the best place to get the latest news on the world of Nintendo. We cover the biggest stories, share impressions of the latest games, and answer your burning questions. There's also some general pop culture talk, game music trivia, a heaping helping of silliness, and did I mention our robot companion? I'm the star of the show. Catch new episodes of the Go Nintendo Podcast every Saturday on the HyperX Podcast Network.